around every bend. I see a new threshold into a liminal space. Surrounded by those who have come before and they who will come after. I see them. I feel them. And I know you do as well. Mortellus is a lineaged third-degree Gardnerian high priestess of the Long Island line, presently busy at work on their third book for Llewellyn Worldwide, with the second, The Bones Fall in a Spiral, a guide to necromancy and the magic of death, set to arrive on shelves September 8, 2022. Be sure to check out their first book, Do I Have to Wear Black? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. In addition to their role as high priestess, Mortellus is a mortician and holds degrees in design, education, fine arts, and mortuary sciences. Their areas of expertise include necromancy, necrobotany, mediumship, and the the funerary rites of minority faith groups. Currently residing in western North Carolina on three acres that doubles as Covenstead for the Coven of Leaves with their spouse, adult child, AMAB and AFAB twins, and a dog, and generally wishing there was more time in the day for hiding out in the studio and playing with clay. You can find all about Mortellus at their website, mortellus.com. Today we have Mortellus, and they are the author of Do I Have to Wear Black, which is one of my favorite books. I love this book. Um, it's all about rituals, customs, and funerary etiquettes for modern pagans. And I could talk just about the book forever, but because <laughs> you put so many things in there that I really found helpful uh, on multiple levels, even with people in the South who are Christian, there's a lot that can be used out of this book. But let's talk about you. <laughs> Probably the thing I'm worst at talking about. <laughs> well, I'll try to make it easy. Let's see where to start. How about telling me how you got into death work to begin with? Oh gosh, it's one of those things people often ask me and I always feel like I have a, like a long-winded, terrible answer for, but um, without rehashing long and traumatic stories that your listeners can find in other interviews and in a chapter of that book, uh, when I was young, I experienced a death. Uh, we throw the term near-death experience around. We don't often use the term Lazarus experience, which is what I experienced. Uh, the distinction being that a near-death experience is a close call with death. I nearly died. But oh, the Lazarus experience means that you not only died, you were declared dead and then spontaneously revived. When I was five, I spent four days in a coma. On the fourth day, I flatlined. 
um, healthcare workers attempted life-saving measures for a period of about 20 minutes, which is standard, failed to resuscitate me, declared time of death, and eight minutes later, I woke back up, miraculously with no brain damage. Uh, it's quite a long time, almost 30 minutes, to be deceased. My spouse might joke that that that's up for debate, but it's <laughs> not nice. <laughs> it's not right. It's terrible. But I had an experience during those moments, and and I often joke that we can call them the, you know, coma-addled experiences of a five-year-old. But I had experiences that were very real and distinct to me that I cannot explain meaningfully or scientifically outside the bonds of of what happened. I grew up in, in a fundamentalist household where we didn't have access to books, television, radio, those sorts of things. But to have this experience of catabasis, descend into the underworld, meet a deity who told me their name, wake back up and get to hold that in my heart until I ran away from home at 17, was able to find them in a book and, you know, have that terrifying moment where all the heat rushes out of your face because this became very real very suddenly. But to come out of that experience with this sort of sense of purpose, I know why I'm here, I know what I have to do, I know what my job is. That was very grounding for me. And I know not everybody has that luxury. And I've been, I suppose, blessed in a way, even though that experience was horrible. The reason I was laying on that table dying was horrible. And a lot of years of life that came after were horrible it still gave me a very clear sense of purpose. You've been told why you're here. You've been told what you have to do. I always knew that I was working toward that moment. So I guess I didn't get into death care work per se. I was told that's what I needed to be doing. I see, you didn't really have a choice. It's just, this is your path. It wasn't easy for me um, because of the way I grew up. I wasn't able to jump right into college and and pursue career goals. I had to pursue survival for a while. So in the earlier years of my life, I volunteered for hospice. I did all of the things I could possibly do that were death care adjacent while getting to a stable point in my life. And it took me a long time to get where I needed to be, but I, I am satisfied with the outcome. You have uh, certainly an interesting and unique practice that I think can inspire a lot of people. And in today's society with COVID and uh, the lack of preparation in Western culture for death in general, I think it's coming more and more forward. And, and obviously, I think your book is, is a staple in learning to deal with death and that transition. As Lazarus experienced, you mentioned the deity that you experienced. Did you then start seeing spirits and feeling spirits and that sort of thing? That door was then opened? That was my experience. And I always hate saying that because it sounds like one of those, it's like Haley Joel Osment in that movie. You're the little kid that sees dead people now. That's, <laughs> that's the joke, right? I feel like that was one of those things that I kept to myself for a very long time. Um, I, first of all, I definitely was not in a household that would have been open to that at all. I, I went to a church that did exorcisms regularly. <laughs> this was, 
this was not going to be a comfortable <laughs> environment. Myself and Devin Hunter are the only the only two people I know that have been through an exorcism <laughs> on the receiving end. How? <laughs> on the receiving end of an exorcism. I, I was a three-time champion. Oh my been god. Baptized you seven done. times. So <laughs> I've seen it all. But, what uh, kind of trauma does that cause? <laughs> we just will say 20 years worth of therapy has been very good to me. <laughs> I didn't have a comfort, a comfortable environment to talk to adults in my life about this. So it was this sort of thing that I kept inside. And when I first ran away from home and started you know, finding my footing in the world, it was this question of, well, am I schizophrenic? We always have to do those self-assessments, right? We always have to check and, and do the right thing, make sure that we are taking care of ourselves and others. So I spent a ton of time in therapy before I was ever comfortable saying, this is something I'm experiencing. And even still, even after having a therapist say, we, you have a clean bill of health in that regard. This is not, this is not a diagnosable experience you're having. It was still something I didn't really share with other practitioners, friends in the broader community. It was just sort of something that was mine for a long time. I think it's one of those skills that has a lot of distasteful associations, and for good reason. There's a lot of history, uh, particularly with the spiritualism community of fraud. Um, I know as someone trained in grief counseling and grief support that it's an area where the recently bereaved can be easily taken advantage of it's an area with the potential for hurt. And we even know scientifically that um, uh, bereaved individuals from communities that uh, espouse magical thinking tend to grieve worse on a practical level because they tend to rely on spirit communication instead of grieving. So it was important for me to really build up an ethical foundation of, of how I felt about it, how I wanted to share that with the community, if at all, what it meant to me. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have such unusual practices. I think it's always been important to me to, I put forth my skills if anyone wants them as suggested donation only if they feel like they got something out of the experience, they're welcome to provide income for it. Otherwise, take what you needed from it and go. And that's enough for me. And I, I won't work with the very recently bereaved. I have a, have a timestamp of three months after death because I do think people really need that time to that, create space. Is that for um, as much for the, the bereaved as it is for the spirit itself? I would agree. Yes. I do think that you know, it's an important mark of time for mundane grieving just to have that bit of space with it. But I do think that the dead have tasks that they need to perform after death. And I do think that if you're creating that kind of codependent bond immediately following death, then neither party is getting what they need. So I always draw those, those boundaries. With what you've just said, how do you recommend people get through those three months without reaching out spiritually? Because in, in my life, what I've seen people do is that that's the, 
the worst time probably that they are they don't know how to juggle anything obviously and and they're so grief stricken that all they can think about is how can i get them back in some way i think there's a big difference the big difference between working with the dead after death and calling a medium for a session okay there's a big there's a big difference between making offerings for their journey building an altar lighting a candle doing these kinds of morning activities and calling a medium for a session to have a conversation that mm -hmm. feels really different i think that that's that's an area where we get into breaches of ethics where that medium is in a position to cause psychological harm and that's that's a tough area kind of feeling that out with clients or or customers individual whatever the right word is there i never yeah. feel like any of those words are correct <laughs> the grieving <laughs> we'll just say the grieving whoever they the might grieving. be yeah correct and and really just taking that time with people to get to know where they are and what they need i think is is just so crucial right i think it's one of the most beautiful parts and my favorite parts of witchcraft as a practice is an ancestor altar and being able to spend time honoring and communing with those spirits. Uh, I totally agree. It's different to um, call them down to speak, you know, and to take them away from whatever their tasks are. And I don't think a lot of people are trained in understanding those things. Right. And, and I think that's a problem in every direction, right? We could we could really break down how that's an issue with how we as a society deal with death, how we as a society deal with the grieved, how we here in America rush the tasks of grief so that we can get back to work and back to our ordinary lives. How we could talk about how we as a magical community are unprepared in a lot of ways to deal with death. We have an aging older generation of founders in neo-pagan traditions who didn't leave us a lot of instructions. And that was one of the reasons for writing that book is, is I hoped to gather as much knowledge from those communities as I could while many of those people were still here to speak to. And I think also when we have a community where a lot of individuals are, if not, in name and title or an act are at least training or considering being some type of community leader or clergy or those kinds of things. We don't talk enough about training in really mundane areas like grief counseling or counseling generally. If you're a clergy person, it's it's no big thing to take a, a few hours of courses at the community college in in counseling just to to give yourself an extra skill set so you can identify someone in crisis better that's good for you and it's good for them and we just don't talk about that really very true we could go on about that forever couldn't we, we could. <laughs> <laughs> there is one other pagan oriented death right book other than yours and it's like 1970 1960 that i found and so yours I think it should be added to the current list of death doula training because it has so many really good resources in it. It's funny. I've, I'm probably just like, I'm telling on myself and, and all your listeners will go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
it's it's been my experience that the the death doula and death midwife community they're they're not fans <laughs> um there's a particular passage in my book that has been called out more than once by people in that community um as upsetting they're, they're bothered by it and i define the difference between a, a licensed funeral director and uh, a death care worker of other kinds mm-hmm. and kind of what their different skill sets are what their training is and and the point here is helping families identify who's right for that moment in their life who they need and i suggest always particularly if you're dealing with with a provider who comes from a school of thought that doesn't necessarily have standardized or accredited training or licensing in any particular kind of way which is true of the death doula community i know a lot of groups are working toward those things but they're not quite in place yet i suggest that that people always get a background check ask what someone's skills are you know what are your references and uh, i i have discovered that has made quite a few people angry with me (laughs) i think it's good advice and i will still i'll keep saying it well i think that's that's advisable on any level um and there are a lot of people that claim to be death doulas that have not had any training and there are exactly uh in virginia there is training available that it will be that is certified um so but there are several i when i went for my death doula training i went through one that would give you a certification so at least it was like a but even then i mean you've got to do your own volunteer work you've got to provide your own uh real background in the the subject matter I mean it's not like they're going to provide you people who are dying to work with you know you've got to already have that somehow I'll tell you something I haven't told anybody at all particularly because you are a death doula and I'm not usually talking to someone in that field um when I was writing the book I was really curious so as part of my research, I've made a list of all the largest organizations that offer that kind of training. And at the time of writing, which at this point has been several years ago, it's been like four or five years ago now, um, I signed up for courses from every single one. Really? There wasn't, there wasn't a single one, not even one, asked me for a background check to prove my identity in any way. I, I gave them all manner of miscellaneous names, uh, most of them gave me a certificate I could put my own name on. Um, and every single one of them I completed in less than a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. You, that... Even the most stringent ones, they give you a series of things that you can, they're PowerPoints, you can read through, click through, take a yeah. test and move on. And I was able to do literally any of them in a day. <laughs> So it, it made me feel like maybe we should be asking more questions about the training when a person says, this is what I am. And I think that's that's reasonable. It's a good way to keep families safe. I, I agree. I agree. And this sounds like I'm being very negative. I'm not. No, I really do you're right. Of- I, I remember being asked like to prove, you know, where am I working and why am I interested in this? And what is my association with hospice and who's the hospice people that I have, that I've worked with. Um, And I think it was like a three-day class and they were upfront about uh, that there isn't a governing society or organization of death doulas that 
advises or approves or anything. They were upfront about that and they were actually trying to do it. And, and, you know, if somebody's interested in who I trained with, I can give you that information and you can contact me later, but we don't want to go down that path too far. Sure. Yeah. Um, I had applied for another one and they actually didn't get enough people and canceled that class. So I was lucky to end up in the class that I got because I felt like it was really well done. And we're talking about grieved families at their most vulnerable inviting someone into their life, their home, their personal spaces, who Mm -hmm. we don't know exactly what their training is. You're obviously very motivated to find more information for yourself, but some must not be. We see caregivers constantly taking advantage of elderly. It's just exactly. It's just one more way for an inappropriate person to get their way into someone's life. Exactly. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of standardization and accreditation. When I compared those curriculum, they were so different. And when a person says, I'm a deaf doula, you should have a reasonable expectation of what set of knowledge they have. Just like when someone says, I am a nurse, helpful to you as a family. And that is the reason why I cautioned families in the book to really ask questions of those kinds of providers. I think that's absolutely valid because they need to know. We talked about your first experience with spirits. What started to happen to you after that? What was the first kind of things that started to happen? That's an interesting question and one nobody has bothered to ask me before. So I'm, I'm excited about that one, but there, there was a lot happening in my life that was not fun or good. (laughs) Just put that out there. So I had a lot of split focus at that point in my life. I don't know. It's easy and cool and fun for me to go. I've been doing this thing since I was five and I've been a witch since forever, but that's only kind of true. Right. And these narratives are intertwined with other pieces of my life in really indelible kind of ways. But I think what was most changed at that particular point in my life was that experience of dissent was well, it wasn't 28 minutes long. (laughs) What was 28 minutes on a table seemed like a very, very long time to me. I had time to have experiences, explore, see places, talk to entities, uh, wander around. When I look back on it, it feels like years. It's like living an entire life in a few minutes and waking up. So I came back even odder than I was to begin with. Not that I was a strange kid, but uh, I think when you're in those kinds of environments, anyone that questions the paradigm is treated as though they're odd. But I definitely was odd after that. I no longer, I don't know, I wasn't afraid of people the way I was before. I didn't, I didn't have the same kind of timidness about me. I didn't I didn't so much respect elders and honor thy mother and father quite like I was dedicated to four days prior, I guess is fair to say, because it all seemed very silly to me. Um, And sort of readjusting into a different headspace was very disorienting. And it's not like my parents were the kind of people to notice this at all, least of all, find therapy or counseling for me. I wasn't even in school, so... There was no, there were no resources for me other than to just be in my head about it. 
finding myself in that space was challenging. But in terms of, of spirits, this, this probably sounds very odd, but um, I, I became really interested in the trees on our property. I came to the sense that each one had an individual uh, spirit about it. And I would spend a lot of time talking to the trees when I was little. I got in trouble for that a lot, actually. That was one of the things that led to me <laughs> winding up on the receiving end of an exorcism because they, they thought I had become some kind of possessed or or had a spirit of witchcraft about me is what they would say in our church but um i would sit and talk to to all the people in the trees they were my friends they all had names and i don't know it sounds like weird little kid stuff but sounds beautiful i, I was very interested in them and what they had to say and i spent a lot of time sitting in the woods talking to them some of those same trees are still growing on the property. And even though I today don't feel connected to them in the same way, I still talk to them. They just don't necessarily talk back anymore. It just seems like something I was, I was more connected to in the innocence of youth than I am now. Different path as you, perhaps. So your practice is a necromancer. Reclaiming it. I'm taking it right. back. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. Um, I think we have to reclaim the word witch, you know, because it needs to be totally re-educated. So re-educate me on the term of necromancer. It's funny. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time taking back witch. We reclaim words like bitch and whore and slut and witch. We take those back. We say those are ours. Here's what they mean to us. But necromancy, death magic is one of the last bastions of taboo, even in the occult community, which is very funny to me. <laughs> Death magic, which is how I would define necromancy broadly. Most people would say necromancy, subroot of mancy is divination, divination with the dead. It implies physical corporeal remains, necro. Seomancy would be divination with shades, but historically necromancy has been used very broadly to define any kind of magic involving the dead. Name me a kind of magic involving the dead that doesn't involve speaking to them or communicating with them. They are all necromancy in some fashion. Ancestor work is necromancy. Mediumship is necromancy. We could debate to what extent they are, but it holds. For me, I, I look back on sort of historical origins, and I, I particularly focus on Greek and Roman necromancy. I stay in a lane. I'm, I'm not one to pull from here and there too much, but um, the necromancer would have been a service-oriented person in the community. The necromancer would not just have been an occult practitioner who worked with the dead, but they would have been a dev care worker that worked with the family they would have provided magical and mundane rites and rituals for families in times of grief. They would have worked to clear spirits from community spaces. They would have intercessed with the dead on behalf of individuals or communities. They were very much, if your friendly neighborhood funeral director was also a witch, that's, that's how you might define it. And I think that's something that we need to remember because death is such an integral part of our magic and an integral part of living. 
we cannot live if we are always focused on life. For anyone who's read the wonderful work, The Worm at the Core, if you haven't, I strongly recommend it, but really taking a moment to think about how your own mortality affects so many of your choices is important. And when we think about how our own mortality affects our magic, well, that's a whole different worm at the core. And I could go down that rabbit hole. We'd be talking for three hours. I'll spare you. But we can do that over say, coffee sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> suffice to say, I do talk about it in my upcoming book, which comes out in September, um, called The Bones Fall in a Spiral, um, A Guide to Necromancy and the Magic of Death. I delve I'm quite a for bit. That. I delve quite a bit into those kinds of topics and really practical, uh, useful death magic that you can incorporate into your magical practice. And I don't know, I, it, it is interesting how we went from being this really service oriented kind of person to uh, being perceived as kind of, you know, you've got like this skull and crossbones armor and glowing green and even raising armies of the dead and all that kind of stuff. And really, we can blame that on Catholics in the 15th century. Catholics ostensibly practiced necromancy. <laughs> right, right. I, they, if you've ever traveled in Europe, then you've seen all of the reliquaries. Yes. I've, they, I've, <laughs> they're over there bedazzling corpses. That's a thing I'm not doing. But <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that... uh, working with Working with saints is necromancy. The very process of canonizing a saint is a process by which one might create a restless ghost. You, if you read those rituals, you're like, well, this is everything we're not supposed to do to a deceased person. Wow. And they're all things that disturb the dead. When they're summoning and speaking to saints, uh, they're not just asking them to do things for them, they're commanding. And if you really look at the work they're doing, it's like, well, if this if this saint didn't do what I wanted, I'm going to bury their statue in the yard or whatever, or I'll put them upside down in the garden. And really, the, this is controlling and oppressing the dead en masse. It's, it's not very awful. respectful. I, it I, is not. No. But, I, I have heard about those, some of those things, like if you can't sell your house, you should bury a saint statue upside down in the yard I mean I've heard that I wouldn't have thought that I wouldn't have considered that necromancy but I see where you're going with it as right. how that whole ritual is actually something rather offensive in the way that they canonize somebody that's that's interesting I have to go that's a rabbit hole I, I'm totally interested in reading about we're, we're talking about disturbing remains keeping them on display giving them their rest um, the ritual itself involves calling them repeatedly over periods of time. You're just constantly wow. disturbing the dead over and over and over. It's that, you're just it's a ritual for creating a very powerful uh, ghost that you can control. <laughs> it, it does. It sounds exactly like that. Yes. Wow, that's interesting. I've never we heard your, that before. We have your body on display, which we have divided into many, many pieces. So everybody everywhere has one and you have no possible chance of rest or repose. Wow. Yes. That's so that's frightening. <laughs> pagans of the time, and I'm saying pagans with heavy air quotes because it doesn't really mean anything. 
pagans of the time thought this was really terrible and weird. They're doing weird stuff over there. Catholics went on a bent of rebranding pagan, again, air quotes, death magic. The rule of the day was if a pagan person summons up the dead, well, they just think it's their ancestor. It's actually a demon pretending to be that loved one. So they sort of rebranded necromancy as being demonic. Anytime you are interacting with the dead, it's, it's demons. And that held over into things like we're looking at uh, Francis Barrett, Eliphas Levy, um, D, and so on. Still sort of disaffected Catholic men doing weird Catholic things and going, well, this is good necromancy and that's bad necromancy. There's two kinds. Um, <laughs> that's a, that is a quote from Eliphas Levy from Transcendental Doctrine. He says there are two kinds of necromancy. The, the, the kind that is prayer and incense and, and love and light and happy stuff. And then there's imprecations and blood and so forth. And nobody should do that kind of necromancy. They were always sort of establishing what was right and what was wrong. So then by the time we see things like Mary Shelley Frankenstein and early 1940s and 50s kind of sci-fi and early B-movies, the necromancer has been branded as something ugly. We could sort of sidestep from there over to the spiritualism movement and talk about talking boards. That's another big piece of the death magic pie. Um, even witches are a little scared of the Ouija board. I put air quotes around that too for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Ouija board is a board game. Well, it's not. Spirit boards, talking boards were very, very popular and actually originate in a couple of different places. Planchettes and automatic writing were used in ancient China. I'm using ancient China as though that sentence means anything, but go look it up. You'll find stuff. Talking boards hit the scene in the 1800s, and they were very, 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 very popular. And Elijah Bond and some friends went, we could probably market this and sell it to people. So they did. They created the Ouija board. The, the naming convention came from a message. It was supposedly a name or, or a message from a spirit. And they went for sale. And Ouija boards were very popular. Everyone liked them. And particularly during times of war, sales would skyrocket because people wanted to talk to their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about it is I can't find a single instance, and I have researched thoroughly, I can't find a single instance of a person talking about Ouija boards being scary, spirit boards being scary, demonic possession, this, that, the other thing, until a singular day in history. Would you like to know what that day was? Love to. It was the day The Exorcist aired in theaters. I was going to say, it's all about TV. <laughs> Movie right. and TV has demonized that completely. So a, a generation of frightened, ostensibly Christian parents, terrified a generation of children who grew up into the witches we are today. So everybody, every time you think about being scared of a talking board, I would like you to remember something, that in May, of 1923, May of 1923, the cover of the Saturday Evening Post was a painting by Norman Rockwell of yes, I've seen it. Ouija board. It was such a common, wholesome family activity that it was the cover of a spring issue. That is amazing. I had seen that in a an exhibit 
uh, last year and I saw it, it was a whole Rockwell exhibit and found that cover. And I was like, why in the world would they do that? I just don't understand what the context was. And of course I couldn't find anything just as a quick Google search. Why is Ouija board on the Saturday evening post? It was actually, it was no different at that time than playing boggle on the weekends. Like it was just such a wholesome family game to just play. It was very common to talk to the dead as a family activity and to sort of look at how on the one hand Catholicism and on the other hand, a movie affected our perception such that even very intelligent, skilled, wonderful practitioners today are still a little nervous mm -hmm. when you say necromancy or Ouija board. That says something about how insidious those kinds of pervasive societal ideas can be. So take it back, y'all. Go like right. play a family game of Ouija on the weekend, like with your kids and stuff. <laughs> I love it. I hope they listen. Everybody <laughs> should have a Ouija board in their house. We have three. <laughs> So why do you think people are so afraid of working with the dead? I think there's the things I just talked about. Of course, those things are there. There's been a lot of societal programming for a long time that summoning the dead is something insidious and scary, that something bad might happen. And really, that is the Catholic programming that you might be talking to something demonic or frightening. Mm -hmm. People don't oh, trust their, their own ability to draw the person that they're asking to speak with they truly think that you know even though i'm thinking i want to talk to my dad that a demon's gonna come i always tell people that while mediumship or channeling or invocation or other kinds of directed methods this is i'm i'm calling a specific person remember that something like a ouija board is more like a party line from the 90s if you remember those um, it's kind of like answering a payphone on the street that happens to be ringing. If you remember, payphones. yes, <laughs> you're calling anyone and everyone. If they answer, that's great. Be prepared to have an unexpected conversation with a stranger and remind yourself that it is a stranger who was curious enough to pick up the phone. And that, I think that's a really important way to look at talking boards and, and other such devices. But when it comes to talking to the dead generally, I always give this one piece of advice. I really think about it. If you're walking through a crowded, let's say a Walmart, somewhere just ridiculous and filled with all manner of people, uh, and it's filled to the brim, like the fire marshal's calling, it's got as many people as it can have in it. There's probably no one in that building, not even one, including yourself, that is truly benevolent. I really think about the meaning of that word. I'm not saying nobody is good. Benevolent is a specific kind of word. There's probably not a Florence Nightingale standing in the Walmart right now because people are pretty selfish actually <laughs> at the end of the day. But there's probably also not a Ted Bundy. There's probably not anyone in the Walmart truly evil. It's probably just a lot of the same kind of like shitty, selfish, morally great people as you would find at a Walmart. <laughs> because truly benevolent and truly benign are exceptions. When you talk to the dead, you're talking to human beings. They are probably going to be just 
as narrowly intentioned as you are. Likely to be good on some days and likely to be in a bad mood on others. We all have bad days, even the dead. And just because someone is ill-tempered, doesn't want to speak to you, doesn't understand you, or is just non-communicative, that doesn't make them evil. It just makes them human. And I think a lot of people don't really, they're so programmed by media that they can't even go there. They truly, and they don't have any self-confidence in what they're doing anyway. You know, if you think you're going to download a demon, you're likely to download it because that's what you've put forward. I could get into a whole thing about whether I believe demons or, or celestial beings exist, really. I think they are creatures that exist on the far reaches of that moral spectrum I was just talking about. But I, I can't say that I've ever had a demonic experience. I I've can't. Definitely, I've definitely had experiences with entities that I found unpleasant, but I never felt like I wasn't in control. I think people should remember that you should be far more afraid of living people because they have so much more capacity for hurt and horror than the dead. You can always right. say, I don't want to talk to you right now and hang up the phone with a dead person. <laughs> you can't necessarily get the person in Walmart with a gun to stop robbing the place, though. Right? That's, right. that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. They relinquish so much of their own control to be able to choose whether they communicate or they don't or how they turn it off or on. They don't know that they have those options. As a psychic working with the dead, do you have like us, your own vocabulary that you've developed that is how you communicate? Oh gosh. Well, I, that's a lot of things to say all the time. <laughs> Very open-ended question. <laughs> I. I will start by saying, and this is important, and it just negates everything I have said up to this point. Before <laughs> this I'm not a psychic, and I don't consider myself a medium at all. <laughs> hear, me hear me out. Okay. I think a psychic is a person with a particular skill, right? Clear audience, the ability to hear something someone else can't hear, clairsentience. Uh, Claire Alliance, and so on. You have right. a full set of senses that you could possibly have. Sight, taste, smell, hearing, touch. And even that unnamed sense, that knowing that some people have. I think a medium is a very talented psychic who has all of those abilities, all wrapped up. Now, I think a person can function really well with some of those when working with the dead. My daughter once quipped rather distastefully that <laughs> she's like, well, if I have all of those psychic abilities, but I, I can't see the dead, I can hear them though. And so on. It, does that make me the Helen Keller of, of mediumship? <laughs> if, you know, teenagers do say, just say things, but um, I think there's a good lesson in there because when we, when we think about ableism in real space and that's an issue that we should all be thinking about go home think about that a little tonight but we don't think about those kinds of things in terms of working magically if you only have some senses you're simply going to have to find ways to function in that space that accommodate those missing pieces of you right so anybody can be a medium and work with the dead even if you don't have all those skills i really think that anybody can do this that said all that said I'm none of those things. I'm not a psychic. I, I would be a shit psychic. <laughs> I would be terrible at it. 
I, I'm just still dead a little. That's the difference. I did very much die. I am occupying a liminal space that not everyone has the benefit of. And I know that sounds like one of those, you know, special snowflake gold star kind of, ooh, you're neat in a way that I am not. But I mean, it's just the thing that happened. I wish that I was a very talented psychic. I would probably be far more useful in life, <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> um, in addition to dying, um, there is something else about me that I think enables me to communicate liminally without psychic abilities. I am a medical chimera. That is an unusual thing. Um, to my knowledge, there are only about a hundred of us known in the world. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't more. It's just something rarely uncovered. A chimera is two people sharing a body. Essentially, I would have been a twin. My twin died and I absorbed their body in utero. In my particular instance, as is the case with all chimera, I have two sets of DNA, XX and XY chromosomes. I know that portions of my body belong to what would have been my brother. They would have been assigned male at birth, and portions of my body belong to me. For example, two of my 10 fingers belong to my brother. I have three kidneys. I have a breast on my right hip, uh, your viewers can't see, but you can see my, my weird little nipple there. <laughs> uh-huh. So I share my body with the dead. We share a space in a way that, I don't know, it's it's just, a, it's a different kind of thing, I think, than being a psychic. I'm just sort of halfway in, I guess, all the time. Okay, this may be too personal to ask. Are you saying that your brother... Is he living within you or is he past? Because with you saying I'm half in and half out, that makes me, and then you're tying it to the chimera of him having, of you having absorbed him. That's a big question, isn't it? Yeah. And magically, what does that mean magically? Am I, am I sharing my energy with someone? Am I haunted by someone or do we well, share quite a wrong answer, obviously. Right. It's what is right for you and how do you process it? What does it feel like? medically they died it would be rather like if uh, a good example would be when a person dies in a car wreck tragically and they donate their heart to someone else just mm -hmm. because that heart is beating inside you doesn't mean that that person is still alive per se part of them True. lives within you absolutely even to the point that there have been documented uh memories come with organs Right. So my sibling died before they ever got to be, but parts of them live within me. So I think it's a mixed bag. It's a little both, a little both worlds. That makes, that makes so much sense. Can I ask, is that why you go by they? Because you are a they. Is part of the reason. Um, that makes so much sense. I identified as non-binary before I knew that I was a chimera. But yeah. I mean, that makes double sense. People joke that I'm the most non-binary. <laughs> well, I, I really love... appreciate you sharing that. That's very personal, but I hope that other people will be more open to non-binary people because they don't know what the story is and they need to just be accepting. 
a soul is I a soul. We should just we should just accept people as they say they are generally. But yes, yes you never know. You never know what someone's story is. And, and it's none of your business either. So just right. <laughs> and it's it's funny too that like I I know that I I share these genetics with another person, but I can't. For example. I have to choose male or female on a driver's license, which sounds so silly. It's so strange to me. People want to joke about, you know, what is your your biological sex? What were you born in? Well, what about all the intersex people in the world? What are they supposed to do? <laughs> it's a strange thing to be living with. I often joke. If I took a shirtless photograph and I put it on Facebook, would I have to censor my breasts, but my my hip nipple? Is that okay to leave out or <laughs> or do i need to censor that one and is one of these my brothers i don't know we didn't tissue tissue sample my nipples so i don't know <laughs> wow that is amazing <laughs> weird funny things to think about when you're not sleeping <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting question though and for me even getting away from things like the high priestess's coven but I try not to use those kinds of terms at all. The, I just say the coven leader. And I haven't, I haven't changed anything or broken the craft. We're just being clear. <laughs> true. Do you want to talk a little bit about your personal ancestor practice? Do you think it looks any different? I, I feel like you're using more of those types of materials on your altar than maybe I would. Sure. Probably. For example, uh, everything you can see in the background of me is human bones here. <laughs> oh, wow. That I'm working with. Most of these are being rehabbed, like they're anatomical pieces that were broken and bound for destruction, those kinds of things. So I'm always kind of loving and caretaking those kinds of pieces. You can see the skull in the background of me. You can see the mm -hmm. head trauma. Oh, wow. I've filled, yeah. it, with, I've filled it with flowers. Um, the entire front, uh, I'll show you, but, uh, oh, my friend, come say hello. And you can see that they suffered a trauma. Gracious. A vandal broke into the anatomical, uh, storage and broke them. Oh. So a piece like this would be considered garbage. So I, I give them a home. That's lovely. Yeah. See, I, I think people have the misconception that as a necromancer or a person that uses human remains in their practice, that you're, you know, doing something creepy when really you're <laughs> honoring them. <laughs> it's just trying to be respectful of what you have been left with right. as opposed and to like, you don't go and dig somebody up or something, you know, it's not Frankenstein everyone listening don't do crimes that's horrible <laughs> <laughs> don't do that you're ethical and legal with everything that you do obviously obviously and i can't always use the word ethical and i, I want to talk about that for a second okay but if we can put a pin in it i'll go back and answer your other question first okay um i do think my ancestor practice looks a little different than most but not just because I'm an necromancer, but because I'm a scientist in a manner of speaking. As a trained mortician, I have to work a lot with the science aspects of death, scientific aspects of death. I sound like a rube. I just, just saying words, but 
there used to be this sort of quip that within 400 generations, we're all related. Well, it's been proven to be untrue because of the advent and popularity of things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, other genetic testing. We now know that within 20 individuals, not just generations, 20 individuals, we are all related. Everyone has a common ancestor after 20 individuals. Everyone is my ancestors. I will work with anyone and everyone. And I find that very wholesome as someone who grew up in an abusive environment who, with a lot of just really shitty, awful ancestors who were like, you know, racists and, and mean to children and stuff. Like, <laughs> for anyone that has troublesome ancestors, I would hope you would take away how wholesome it is to imagine that anyone in the world is your ancestor in some measure. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, throw right on your ancestor altar. You're probably related somehow. You would find an ancestor between you if you checked. If you looked hard enough, you would. Everyone is your family. You have a world of family, past and present and future. That's your perspective then, is that anybody that comes across your table in any fashion is part of you. Yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. I wish they're all they're all my lovers more open-hearted like that that's beautiful oh we, we, we were going to go back and answer that other question sorry I, I wanted to talk a little about the distinction between ethical and responsible okay anything i do in my practice of course is legal that matters a lot to me my integrity is really important to me as is my work but when you're talking about something like for example um purchasing or owning human remains. And for the purpose of this statement, I'm talking about bones or perhaps an antique wet specimen you bought on eBay or some, some nonsense. Don't do that either. That's probably also crimes because you have no idea where it came from. And that's where the responsible element comes in. But most of the pieces available today that are legal to own are medical specimens retired osteological specimens at a point in history pretty recent history for example if you went to dental school along with your textbooks you'd be assigned a skull <laughs> to study it was just yours forever so there mm -hmm. are tons of people who have pieces like this just in their families sitting in a closet somewhere waiting for someone to terrifyingly discover them one day and what happens to those pieces? Well, if they really don't know where they came from, they probably call the police and it was a hilarious conversation at the end of the day. <laughs> that happens. Um, they might donate them to a medical school. They will likely have to sell them to someone who collects such pieces because what else do you do with them? Do you throw them away? Do you bury them for some future person to be very confused by? But because they're medical specimens, privacy laws are in place. We cannot know everything about that person. We don't know where they came from, how they died, what kind of life that they lived. So I cannot guarantee that that medical specimen is ethical because I do not know their story. But what I can do is be responsible by acquiring it in a way that I know is legal, well-documented, and respectful. So really think about the differences between ethical and responsible when you're talking about uh, these kinds of issues. 
it's also not, you can't say it's ethical to own a feather that you picked up because you, you don't know how it came to be separated from the creature that it once belonged to. For all you know, someone could have, you know, strangled it and pulled that out and thrown it on the ground and that would be horrible. You can responsibly collect things like that by purchasing them, for example, from a zoo who uses fallen feathers as a fundraiser or purchasing them from a scientific supply who knows exactly where they came from, that they're legal to own, that they are safe to own, those kinds of things. We put a lot of emphasis on ethics and ethical practices, but it's important to remember that ethics are bound by culture, practice, and time. You have to operate responsibly in the best information of the day for the culture in which you exist. When I provide things on my website, I do have a little web store. This is not an ad. It is a good talking point. Um, I have quite a lot of uh, ritual goods there because I do think it is very difficult to acquire some of these items responsibly. So I have graveyard dirt. Why? Because I have special access. As a death care worker on the professional end of things, um, I'm there when people are digging graves. It's very easy for me to say to my grave digger friend, uh, I'm going to take a bucket of this if that's quite all right. I'm not breaking into a cemetery. In most states, going into a cemetery after hours is deemed trespassing. Most people don't know that. Um, and after hours constitutes after sundown and before sunrise. That's a mm -hmm. narrow window <laughs> to, to not be trespassing. And that's a big crime if you get arrested in a cemetery. Being able to have access to those things in a way that is responsible. That give that affords me the ability to provide things to people that they might not be able to gather responsibly. I provide things like, for example, corpse water, which is a feature of a lot of my magic, but simply water that the recently deceased have been washed with. I'm able to gather it as part of my work. I provide funeral services, largely pro bono. So I often ask families if I can have something like that, if it's quite okay with them. And if they consent, then I might gather some up as I'm doing my work wring out a washcloth into a jar, take it home, pasteurize it and so forth, make that available. Those kinds of goods are not always easy to come by, but if you can and you know that you have an ethical source, they can be a really important part of your magic. A lot of people work with coffin nails, for example. Coffin nails are commonly made. The process by which you might take carpentry nails and bury them in a cemetery and dig them up later. I have coffin nails that are from used coffins, pulled from. So I think recycling is a huge part of necromancy. Reuse, reuse, uh, recycle, reanimate, I always joke. But um, that's a I nice phrase. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think there's a lot of waste in the death care industry that we can uh, put to use, particularly um, if someone is disinterred. If, so, if, if a person is dug up and remanded somewhere else. Sometimes they're dug up for forensic purposes. Uh, they might be uh, disinterred to be relocated, say if a family's moving and they want their loved one to be buried near them. Mm -hmm. um, but in those instances, the remains are often reprepared and placed in a new burial container. So those disinterment caskets are waste. 
they wind up in landfills. Rental caskets for those who have viewings before cremation but have chosen not to have um, a casket for the cremation. Um, rental caskets, once they, if they get stained or if they're no longer appropriate or they've gone out of style, they are retired, wind up in the landfill. <laughs> but they are effectively used, so I will try and stay in touch with people and acquire these things when I can um, and then break them down into parts for use in, in the items that I craft. Pull those nails. I have a jar full of them when somebody needs one. I package them up and send them off. That's so interesting. Yep. Those items, is it important that that it just be from a dead person or does it matter that it's not their family or how do, how do you use something like that that is just kind of generically from a dead person? You see what I'm saying? I think that a lot of people get hung up in two areas. One, okay. they, either, they either think of these goods as baneful and only good for baneful magic or two, they look at it as a kind of ancestor veneration or something really specific like you were talking about with your homeowners but i think people forget that death energies things touched by death specifically and and i'm i'm being very specific there as in things that have come in contact with the dead mm -hmm. that transition energy yes. That liminal energy and that death energy is very specific and potent and useful for a lot of things. Some examples. Graveyard dirt. I'm using dirt from freshly dug graves, A, or disinterred graves, B. That's what I offer all the time. Um, when people talk about using graveyard dirt, they're usually talking about things like five points dirt taken from like all the corners of the cemetery mixed up from a specific grave, a specific kind of person, mm -hmm. um, uh, those sorts of things. I don't work like that. And I know not everyone has access to a freshly dug grave or a disinterred grave, but pay attention to your local newspaper. You might be surprised. Um, <laughs> just keep an eye out. You never know. Um, freshly dug grave dirt is imbued with a kind of energy that's about transition, liminality, um, rites of passage, entering a new space. Um, disinterment earth is older. It's more in tune with the broader energies of death and the underworld. It has a deeper aspect to it that is unique. That's not something you would necessarily find in graveyard dirt from your homeowner's grave for example right you're collecting you're collecting that yourself you're not taking it from the depths of of cemetery how how would you use grave dirt in magic just off the top of your head um i'd probably put it in like a salt or something like that to mix with water um to use it on my altar on my ancestor altar because water is always a, a nice offering to make that sort of thing so very mundane kind of boring thing <laughs> So you're using it as kind of a of uh, an elemental connection, kind of. When people think of grave dirt, they usually think of things like hexing or cursing, which is not how yeah, I use it at I all. I don't do stuff like that. One of my favorite spells with grave dirt is take a pinch, a little pinch of grave dirt, uh -huh. and toss it at the back of a child as they're leaving. Say they're going on vacation, they're leaving with a friend, they're headed to a sleepover, they're getting on the bus. It's saying, "Watch out for them." 
take care of them today. When I can't be there, be there for me. It's a protective action. And these kinds of, if, if we're talking about the two kinds of earth I like to work with, you could use that freshly dug earth on say, the first day of school, on their wedding day, um, as your friend starts a new job, right? It's very transitional. These transitional periods, lovely. Right. This disinterred earth might be um, their school's taking a bus trip states away, and I can't be there. I want, I want the strongest contingent of ancestors that are willing to show up for me, to be with them. These are, are kind of the energies that you can pull from those. Um, drop a coffin nail, a real coffin nail, and it has to be an actual coffin nail, into some bath salt and leave it from new moon to new moon and then use it in your bath and it acts as a protective substance. Corpse water gives you the liminal qualities of death. How could it be useful to you in a mundane way, practical magic? People talk all the time about cord cutting, hex breaking, curse breaking, etc. We don't talk about the fact that these kinds of things do tend to have an expiration date of death. You can't continue being cursed after you have died. <laughs> That's kind of a difficult curse to do. You don't exist. Consecrate yourself with corpse water. It gives you the qualities of death. All of those things just drop away. Reconsecrate yourself with fresh water and salt to give yourself the qualities of life again. Brand new, like a little That's baby. beautiful. It's beautiful. I think you have such a unique perspective because you have really just imbued yourself with this energy it, and in your practice, in your life, in your work, and everything you do. So your perspective is very unique, and yet it's still very positive. And people don't look at it that way at all. They automatically are like, oh, can't look that way. What Some I, of these things are in your your first book. Are you going into more of those kinds of things into the in the new book? Absolutely. The first half of the book is all um, history, ethics, foundational practice, those kinds of things, tools, materials. The second half, second half of the book is called A Book of Shades, which I think is very clever. I love a good pun. <laughs> I do. I love a good pun. Um, it's an entire spell book and it has everything from a circle casting and circle closing to consecration of tools to a full set of Sabbath rituals. If that's important to your practice, people might wonder how can you have a Sabbath ritual for Beltane that's necromantic, for example, but you can do it. It is possible. You're really outside most people's box. I, I don't live inside very many boxes. For the Beltane ritual, I'm talking about planting a garden. How is planting a garden necromantic? You might possibly wonder, but think about the things that we use in gardening. Compost is decaying and decayed organic material, which can include living things. You can compost animals, and I do talk about that a bit in the book. If you find roadkill on the side of the road, it could be part of your compost bin. Blood meal, bone meal, and other such materials as fertilizer for your garden. These are all things that bring death into life and in growth. I talk about turning grave dirt into your garden as you work and 
anchoring each corner of your garden bed with a coffin nail to create essentially a cemetery in which you can work right in your own backyard because you're imbuing that space with the energies of death and giving yourself that kind of renewable space. Very interesting, like a, a liminal portal there for birth because every death comes is tied to birth in some exactly. fashion. Planting your garden and how no matter what grows or doesn't grow, you should tend it because growing isn't the point. Grow if you can. Make tomatoes and corn be part of your life later on and think about how you grew it and what those elements constituted in your life. But if that garden doesn't grow and not a single thing comes up, take care of it anyway because the grave is important as well. Oh, how interesting. But I, I wrote an invocation for this garden, which I'll share with you if you like. Please. To the unquiet earth, these seeds committed, out of darkness born. In this grave, I plant a garden, that life rise in the morn. Beauty in life like summer flowers, never what it seems. For gardens that lie fallow, flourish in fields of dreams. In most myths regarding the underworld, there is always a garden. Pleasure garden, the Elysian fields, the summer isles, etc. I like to think that this is Persephone's garden and that all the wonderful little house plants that we fail to keep alive here spring up there for her. So if this garden doesn't grow for you, she can tend it. Wow, I'm so impressed, that's so beautiful. You're gonna make me cry. I always talk about, and this is probably something good to leave your listeners with. Yeah, we talk a lot about traditions as fertility traditions. You hear that mm -hmm. tossed around a lot. And for me, as a non-binary LGBTQ person, I'm not leaving out acronyms. I'm just making it short. <laughs> um, those can be really distasteful things to think about. Fertility, what does it mean? Well, how are we using it? And I spent a lot of time in my work and practice really considering what makes a ritual or a practice or a tradition about life because that's what we're talking about with fertility right we're talking about birth and growth and growing right we stand in circles right hip to the altar walking clockwise around we we hold our athami in the right hand like good wiccans or, or whatever we happen to be we do all the right things we start in the east beginnings we walk clockwise around. But when we do this, we are always advancing that clock forward. We are always advancing time forward. We are always walking toward death as is good and right. But, but, we need a balance in life and in magic. Necromancy operates on a series of reversals and returns. It's always about turning things around backwards. And we think about this in terms of, you know, raising a corpse from the dead or something like that. That's, that's what we imagine. But I would say to you and to your listeners, what if we turned our clock around? We started in the West. We walked counterclockwise. And for just a moment, let our altar be a pivot point 
for rebirth, for reincarnation, for existence, for losing. Because when you walk forward, always advancing time, your magic is always about decay. It's always about death. But when you flip it on its head and you really consider mortality and you really think about death, you are always, always walking toward life and beauty and love and all the things that you once were and will never be again because you have to turn around and face it. Walking the clock backwards is always, always about life. Beautiful. I, I do think that uh, acknowledging death is very vital in having a beautiful life. And people who are have death experiences or work in the death industry are some of the more interesting people most of the time. <laughs> I've seen some thinkers. <laughs> well, you know. The few that I have been blessed to really get to know are usually very compassionate and, and open-minded and loving and, uh, and, and really out of the box, you know, because you are called to do a work that is harder than almost anything else that people do. You support so many people at their most tragic moments. Carry that stuff around in your heart every day, all day, and not be made a little strange by it. You just yeah it just seems pointless at times you know, people talk about i'm always telling people do your do your end of life planning do your paperwork just do it it takes an hour i agree and, and i think it's even more important for people who are marginalized because if if you haven't done your medical directive or things like that you can end up having your body presented inappropriately to what your wishes are if you haven't done appropriate paperwork. I had a, I had a case that was a person in their early 20s who was just about to go off to start college, had received scholarships, bright future, everything perfect in their life. They had gone out to buy groceries. They came home with their groceries. They got out of their car. They walked to their door across flat ground. They unlocked their door. They opened their door. They tripped again on flat ground. Tripped and broke their neck and died. Oh, God. Walking into That's... their house. Just die. You can die anytime for any yeah. stupid reason. <laughs> just do your paperwork. You know, that's as a death doula, I see it as my job to be whatever that person needs me to be that it's not my place to make a decision for them at all my job is just to facilitate what they want and support that not to change it and in the funeral industry our job is to do what next of kin wants we support the family we're there for the family we deliver to the family what they've asked for yeah, yeah. but <laughs> that is the misconception that people have is that they think that they're going to have the funeral that they want, when in reality, you're going to have the funeral your family wants you to have. And that's the big question, isn't it? Is a funeral for the dead or for the bereaved? That's the big question. Technically, it's probably for the bereaved because the dead person is passed, but the dead person, the person who is passed, thinks it's for them. That's 
where I would disagree. Because, because that is a very Christian idea. It is a very Christian idea. In any magical community, any magically thinking community, which is going to be any community except for mainstream modern Christianity or Catholicism, basically any other tradition on the planet includes magical thinking, right? Right. I mean, try right. and think of one. You won't. No. <laughs> it don't exist. They're, they're Christian myth, mystics and have been throughout time. You know, they're spiritual, so, magical thinking in every. For everyone else, which constitutes about 70% of the world's population, I have checked. 70% of the world's population. The funeral is for the dead because the dead are aware. The dead can attend. The dead are part of your life still. They get to be at that party. It's their party. <laughs> it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's their party. It's for that other tiny percent. And by the way, it is so tiny. It's like 7% because the other chunk is atheists. So it's like 70% magically thinking communities broadly. Tiny, reasonably large chunk of atheists. And then like 7% Abrahamic. That is the world's break. <laughs> There's such a tiny wow. amount of people. Nevertheless, this tiny group that has fooled us that they are the majority. <laughs> Um, they believe that the funeral is for the bereaved because they do not believe the dead are present. They believe the body is inviolable and should be protected, buried, because it will rise again from the dead. And many of those groups, depending on how orthodoxical they are, they don't believe in cremation. True. So that is very Christian thinking. It's just baked into our society. And in fact, we know psychologically we have enough studies to support the fact that families grieve better if they feel they have given the dead the kind of rights that they want. We see this play out in things like honoring last wishes. Why would that not apply to a funeral as well? We just don't do that. And, and, and honestly, when you talk to a person who is on their deathbed, they become so unselfish that they just they're already one foot on the other side that they no longer see the point so at that point they just start going do whatever they want do whatever they want i always tell people when you're doing your planning write down ask for what's right for you but put a plan b put a plan b that you're comfortable with if your family cannot do what you're asking for if it's just not possible for some reason finances or let's say you've asked for a green burial but you were in a horrible accident and they can't collect your body and bury you themselves because they're that would be traumatic or whatever put your plan b like i want a green burial at home wrapped in a shroud buried by my family but if you can't do that i would like to be cremated or aquamated or whatever have your your second choice that's how you can be unselfish to the living that's how you can show kindness and compassion in reverse. But I do think family should honor what you want broadly. Yeah, I think in, in certain circumstances, some of us may have to have multiple, <laughs> you know, something for us that suits our belief systems and how we want to go and then something to make our family happy and feel like they had their... I don't give a shit about that, actually. <laughs> if it comes down to the difference of 
the thing I've asked for circumstantially might be traumatizing or the thing I have asked for circumstantially might be unaffordable. That's one thing, but we're talking about what kind of party you have, right? Right. That's different than um, throw me a Christian funeral and a Wiccan one. That's crappy and nobody should do that. Your family should stand there in your beliefs and honor who you were. They should not impress their beliefs on you after death. I, I, I agree. I do agree. I'll say to you what I said. But... <laughs> I oh, whipped this in another podcast. Tomorrow, my mom's going <laughs> to be buried a certain way. <laughs> but I have other things that have to be done for my soul. That's between you and your mom. <laughs> yeah. So, but I plan to outlive my mom anyway. So she won't hear I, this. <laughs> I, quipped, I, I quipped in an, in another podcast once that when I'm there, I'm there for the dead, not the family. And family can just die mad about it <laughs> is there anything else you want to share oh gosh i'm i'm very bad at self-promotion so i'll say that if anybody wants to find me online i'm i'm on most of the old people platforms i'm, I'm not on you do facebook. Stuff, but i'm on facebook i'm on twitter i'm on instagram i have a website um, if you search mortellus or a crow in the dead you'll find me at any of those places I just launched uh, the rebuild of my website today. There's some new events listed. There's some other stuff up. I have some workshops and classes coming up in the future. And let's see, gosh, new book coming out in September. Very excited about that. And uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. I always tell people if you want to support people in their time of need right now, a great way to do that is to support families in Ukraine. If you want to throw your support in the direction of the recently bereaved, you can always check out fundthefuneral.com. Think about it as like a GoFundMe for funerals. Funeral homes post on behalf of families. When you donate to it, there's no middleman. No one's taking out any fees. Any money that you donate goes directly to the account of that family, specifically with that funeral home. It goes directly to them. Um, if their funeral is overpaid, any excess funds go directly to the family. Um, oh, that's wonderful. So it's, so it's a great little thing. Funeral homes, if they have a family that is struggling, they might even post them without telling them that they've done it so that they can just tell them their bill has been paid in full. So that's a great way to help families out in even really small ways. Huge, huge way. Huge way. That That is something that most people don't really prepare for and and very often it's for younger people yes and especially during this pandemic so many younger lives have been lost people just never thought about preparing for death and it's a good way to pitch in be there for them i really look forward to your new book coming out and i hope you'll consider coming back again and talking to me i'd be glad to and the book is up for pre-order now so everybody listening go check it out share it with your friends you know, early reviews and sharing links and even just adding a book to your Amazon wish list. Those, these are actually hugely impactful to authors because of the way internet like algorithms and stuff works. So those are tiny ways to help out. It's author. already pre-ordered for me. So as soon as I saw it, <laughs> you can tell I'm a fan. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you so much, Mortellus. You are amazing.
It was a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to talk to new folks. Come find me online and say hi. And uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime. Awesome. Thank you.